Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I am your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, and our producer, Lindsay, and we are streaming live in the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Studio in Moses Lake, Washington. I have the privilege today of having Dr. Wendy Doran on our on our show today. And as always, speaking of our show, you can find us here live on my personal Facebook page or the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy's YouTube site. Also, any of the major podcast forums, so SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, Google Play, iHeartRadio, all those, you can listen You can listen there also. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy YouTube channel so you do not miss any episodes. As you know, I've got some fancy eyeglasses on today. Um, I don't like these. My, I, my Oakleys are broke. So go ahead. You can make fun of me. But without them, I could not read um, Dr. Duran's impressive resume. So let me go ahead when I introduce her. So she is double board certified in general psychiatry and addiction medicine, trained at University of Miami and Harvard, Longwood program, practicing since 1998, mostly worked in private practice in Florida until 2015. She got interested in treatment of addiction. She worked in 2015 and 2019 helping people overcome addictions to alcohol and drugs and all the way from Florida to Alaska. She picks Alaska to live in. Quite a variation of weather for sure. Um, she moved in 2019 on a grant to treat underserved people with addiction. So that's kind of her passion is addiction. And we're going to talk about addiction today. Um, She's interested. This is very interesting. I had a contact call with her last week, and there's a lot of link between childhood trauma, adverse childhood experiences, and later development of addiction and mental health issues. So without further ado, Dr. Duran, welcome to our show. Glad to be here. So um, go ahead and tell us. A, I, 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 first of all, you are incredibly... Um, qualified and you've got an impressive resume. So um, go ahead. If I missed anything, you know, tell us a little bit about how maybe you, you know, your personal story about, you know, how you treat patients and, and why you got into addiction medicine. Well, I've always been interested in, um, you know, what makes people tick? Why do they behave the way they do? And some of my own personal experiences too influenced my, my career choice. I come from a family with a lot of addiction. Um, my father struggles with alcoholism, so does my brother. I've had my own struggles in the past. Um, and that really led me to kind of want to study and learn as much as I could about what causes people to um, you know, look for a solution to their problems like addiction versus something healthier. And once they've made that choice, what makes it so easy for some people to accept help and climb out of that, um, whereas other people really, struggle over and over and over, maybe having to go back to rehab several times or actually die from the disease. So um, one of the reasons I came up to Alaska was that we have such a high rate up here of addiction, mental illness. I think we're the number one state in the union for suicide attempts. And I actually um, qualified for a grant to come up here and study addiction, study trauma, which I believe most of addiction is related to childhood trauma. Um, so it's been really interesting. So can you, can you expand on, um, explain why Alaska has a higher incidence of, of mental illness than the other states in the union? I think a lot of it has to do with um, kind of generational trauma. So when Alaska was kind of purchased from Russia, 
um, many of the, the Alaskan people were living kind of very different lifestyles. They weren't, and some, many of them still do today. They don't necessarily live in a town where there's a grocery store and roads and schools. Um, they live in remote areas where they live off the land and they, they fish, they hunt, they gather blueberries. Um, and they, so their lives are organized very similarly to the way, um, the way people lived before kind of industrialization. So when, when we decided to take over Alaska, a lot of missionaries came here and they thought the most important thing is for these Alaskan kids to kind of go to a regular school, learn, learn regular ways of, um, ways of doing things. So they would take these children out of their tribes, out of their villages and force them to go away to boarding school. When they were in boarding school, they weren't allowed to speak their own language. And there was a lot of abuse that happened to these kids. So I think it's just the generations of abuse and trauma that have kind of set set up Native Alaskans for having these issues. And it's also partly genetic. For example, part of my ancestry is Irish. My dad is half Irish. And we know that Irish people are in some way genetically vulnerable more than some other people are to addiction. It's the same thing with Natives. So um, Native Americans have a, a much higher genetic predisposition to addiction. And can, when we are describing addiction, is it a certain kind of addiction, alcohol, drugs, gambling, or are they all kind of related? Can you expand on that? So I think all addictions are related, um, but definitely alcohol. There's a strong genetic predisposition for alcoholism in both Native Americans, Native Alaskans, and um, Irish people. But really, when I think of what addiction is, addiction is just a kind of an adaptation to your environment. So we think of it as a, a, a mal maladaptive response. But when you think about somebody who's been traumatized by caregivers, people are looking to have a safe relationship, especially as children. We need a safe adult caregiver to kind of teach us what, what, does, a, what, what does safety look like? What does connection look like? What does attachment look like? When you don't have that, you're going to look for some other way to soothe your nervous system and find security, safety, um, and a feeling of reduced anxiety and overall well-being. So it's kind of natural that if you find a food or a, um, a drink, a drink of alcohol, which kind of will soothe you, sedate you, or maybe it'll be marijuana. Um, it could be Facebook. You know, people today, they're looking for connection when they're spending hours on Facebook. But what they're actually getting is um, the loss of hours out of their day. So it's all a similar mechanism. So you mentioned in our pre-call that, you know, a lot of times when people go through treatment, they can, you know, in a 90-day program, they can be, you know, um, they can be uh, recovered. Um, but not everybody can. And you're kind of doing some studies on that. Is that correct? About why some people never really get better beyond that? I think it has a lot to do with how much adversity you had as a child. So um, there was a study done in 1995 called the ACEs study, and it was done by um, some researchers in California. I think it was Felitti and Anda, um, Vincent Felitti. And it was a, it was a huge study. It was 17,000 people. Um, and I think it was Kaiser Permanente. So 17,000 people, 14,000 of them, 14,000 of them participated. 
It was conducted over a 10 year period. And they were asked all kinds of questions about adversity in childhood. Did you have emotional abuse, physical abuse? Um, was there sexual abuse? Did you live with an addicted parent? Did you have um, a parent who had a mental illness? Did you have a, a parent or caregiver who went to jail? So they asked all these kind of questions and they came up with 10, um, 10 kind of, it was like a, a 10 point scale. So let's say you had a mentally ill parent. Well, for, I could tell you from, from my own perspective, I had a mom with mental illness, a dad with alcoholism. Um, they didn't divorce, but they did separate multiple times. So that would be another point. My ACEs score ends up being um, a six. So your highest could be a 10. If you look at children who had an ACEs score of four or more, they had much higher rates of heart disease, cancer, um, immunological problems, autoimmune diseases, depression, anxiety, and the rates of the diseases that they developed were in direct proportion to the score. So if you looked at, um, for example, they looked at women with addiction and um, they used some epidemiological measures and they found that you could directly correlate alcoholism in women, 65% to their ACEs score, um, drug abuse, 50%, and IV drug abuse, 78%. So if you look at somebody with an ACEs score of six or more, they're not just more likely to have an addiction, they are 4,600% more likely to have an addiction to IV drugs. So I began seeing this you know, direct correlation when I was treating people with addiction in Florida, um, particularly some of, as you would expect, some of the people in lower socioeconomic groups. I worked for um, some private treatment centers and I also worked for a state run where we would get uh, patients straight from jail. They were told by the judge, either you go get treatment or you go to jail. And just the stories that I would hear from these men or women, you know, grew up in the foster care system, never had a mom or a dad. Dad left when I was born. Mom was also an addict. We lived in the back of her car until we were taken away by child services. Um, you know, these kids were sexually abused from a young age. So the more of these ACEs that they had, generally the, the worse they did in treatment. Um, so it's very important, I would say, for, for health professionals, particularly mental health professionals, addiction treatment providers, people in the criminal justice system. We need to be trauma-informed, which basically just means we need to know about this ACEs study. We need to know how, what does it look like when somebody has trauma? How do they present? What is, how does that make this person behave? Because sometimes when you look at the behavior of people who have been, uh, who have had childhoods like that, they don't, they can seem shut down. They can seem like they're not paying attention. They can seem like they're behaving aggressively when really they're just acting out of a traumatized nervous system that has never been able to trust other human beings. Janet, do you have any comments on that or questions well, for Dr. Duran? Yeah, I do. So it kind of, you know, I always throw this in in our podcast coming from a uh, mother's perspective, I imagine some of these things we see play out in school. And I feel sometimes, and, and I'm not saying the behavior is correct, but um, I feel sometimes that we shame children and judge children in situations where really they're asking for help. Can you comment on that? Well, I, I have an, an aunt and a cousin who both work in special ed in Texas and, you know, they're both studying trauma as well. And they, 
they are trauma informed. So, you know, they'll tell me about some of the things they encounter where the kids are coming to school. They haven't, they don't have food. I mean, a lot of this has been coming up during the coronavirus where lower income parents are dependent on the school system kind of as a place to watch their kids while they work two or three jobs, um, a place to feed their kids. So it's, when I talk about, you know, multi-generational trauma, the ACEs study wasn't designed to blame parents. For example, my parents, I don't blame my parents for the fact that I have six ACEs. It's not my mother's fault that she has bipolar disorder. And my father was just, I think he's third generation alcoholism. They only could give me what they had. But it is important that um, school systems, prison systems, mental health systems, addiction treatment systems, and even just your average parent understand what trauma is, what it looks like, and how to treat it. Because we can't prevent every bad thing that can happen to a child. But if we understand what's going on, we can intervene. Um, There's a woman in California, I think if I'm saying her name right, it's Nadine Burke Harris. And she's a pediatrician who wrote a book called uh, the deepest well. And it's about, she started seeing the same thing in her pediatric patients that I started seeing in my addicted patients. Um, and wondering if the diseases that she saw in kids, asthma, IBS, migraines, um, even broken bones, um, how related were these, what we call just, you know, average childhood illnesses, were these related to the traumas? And she did a bunch of studies and found that yes, most of the diseases that we think are genetic, um, they're directly related to the trauma we went through as kids. And the fact that our nervous systems kind of got stuck in fight or flight. Um, you can imagine if, when you're exposed to a bear, you kind of, um, your thinking brain goes offline. You, are, you become pure emotion, pure adrenaline. You're gonna get ready to fight that bear. Well, then your nervous system, when the bear runs off, returns to normal. But if that bear is a parent who comes home every night from the bar, your nervous system is in constant fight or flight and it kind of gets stuck there. So there are ways to intervene though. You can have um, an after school program. You can have a therapist for the child. You can teach the child yoga, meditation, art therapy, ways to calm their body down. And if you intervene early enough, you can prevent a lot of these illnesses. So speaking of some of those therapies, um, can you explain, we should have done this earlier on, but can you explain the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? Because there's a big difference. Can you explain that? The basic difference is just in the training. So a psychiatrist like me goes to medical school first. We do college, we do four years of medical school, and then we do, um, I did a four-year residency. So the first year is a lot of... Um, just kind of like internal medicine where we learn about things like hypertension and diabetes and neurology and the function of the brain. Um, and then the, the, after that, you have three years where you learn how to diagnose and treat mental illnesses. So you'd go to a psychiatrist to find out, are the symptoms that my child or my partner or me or that I'm experiencing, are these due to a brain disease such as a stroke or a brain tumor? Or are these actual psychological symptoms? And once you determine what the symptoms are due to, can they be treated with medication? Um, a psychologist has much of the same experience in diagnosis, but they can't prescribe medications and they won't necessarily understand all of the biology of the brain because typically they've finished college, they've studied psych psychology, 
and then they go on for a master's in psychology or a doctorate. Um, but there's a lot of overlap between the two. And typically, I would be able to refer you to a psychologist if that's necessary, and a psychologist would be able to refer you to a psychiatrist. So since a psychiatrist can prescribe medications, are medications um, the answer to a lot of these um, childhood traumas that create addictions? I think medications are a very, very small piece of the puzzle. I think um, they can be very useful for some kinds of diseases. For example, if you have severe bipolar disorder and you can't sleep on your own and you can't regulate your emotions, then something like a mood stabilizer can be really helpful. Or if you have schizophrenia and you don't know what's real because you're hearing voices and you're having auditory hallucinations or visual hallucinations, then you an antipsychotic can be very, very helpful. But I think the majority of the work that needs to be done, particularly in children, is determining why is your child having symptoms of, let's say, inattention. Um, this is one of the things that came up in, in the book I was telling you about the deepest well, and then it also comes up in addiction treatment. So why would somebody be so anxious and so distracted that they can't pay attention in school? And why are they looking to self-medicate with marijuana or alcohol? Well, typically, you know, a lot of things, a lot of the times this is missed too. If you go to say just a, um, a pediatrician or a primary care doctor, they're gonna think, well, this is ADHD. The kid can't pay attention because they have attention deficit disorder. That may be true, but it may also be that the child has post-traumatic stress disorder and the hyperactivity is kind of hyper arousal in the nervous system. And this is what I saw over and over in my patients in, addicted, in addictive treatment. Um, and sometimes the only drug that they were taking uh, is one that a lot of people consider harmless, but marijuana. So when kids start using marijuana at a young age, it can affect brain development, um, can lead to psychosis, can lead to anxiety, can lead to an actual withdrawal sy syndrome that looks a lot like irritability, anxiety, and short temper. Um, but really it's the direct effect of the drug. So you're, with marijuana being legal now, there's a lot more you know, younger generation, especially that are using it, um, just recreational, but you've seen, have you seen an increase in, in mental, in mental issues because of the use of marijuana? I don't know that I could tell you for sure, you know, without doing some epidemiological studies is the increase in mental health issues due to the marijuana or are people using more marijuana because they have more mental health issues? I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg. Right. I can tell you in my patients that already have mental health issues, um, it seems to worsen them. Now the patient will tell you, oh no, this helps me. But when I show them, you know, some scales they've filled out, or, you know, if I give them, there, there are some um, scales that we use, like there's one called the HAMD that can measure the degree of, of your depression. There's another one that measures, um, gives you points for how anxious you're feeling. And when they look at the objective data, they can see they're actually feeling worse since they've started using that drug. Um, but that is kind of one of the hallmarks of, of addiction too, is that people tend to be in denial about what they're, they're doing. Um, and that's what makes it difficult to treat is that many times people, they only remember the good. It's, we call it euphoric. Um, they can remember, but I felt really good when I ate that chocolate chip cookie. They don't remember that they kept eating the whole bag for four years and developed obesity. Um, right. Yeah. It's that dopamine hit, right? It's neurotransmitter that we just like that dopamine. Um, 
So can you explain how um, how how does diet affect affect mental illness? So I think diet is probably the most important piece of the puzzle, and I think it's one that we overlook daily in in the U.S. healthcare system. And I think the reason for that, when I went to medical school, um, I don't recall that we even took a class in nutrition, to be honest. I, I really don't think we did, and that's not uncommon. Um, I don't know if it's just there's so much to learn that it gets pushed to the outskirts. I'm, I'm not sure what it is. But primarily what we learn in medical school is pathology, pathophysiology. We learn, you know, what can go wrong and how to treat it. Um, and that's important. But when you think about all of your major diseases, um, they all have, you know, a, a medication that you can take for the most part. And you might take that medication once a day. You might take it two or three times a day. Well, your food and your nutrition, you're doing every day of your life, at least three times a day. Sometimes people will eat six meals a day. We know there's a link between, let's say, diabetes and your weight and your nutrition. We know there's links to hypertension, um, but really there's links to every single disease. And if you think about like a traumatized brain that's already having trouble paying attention or dealing with inflammation, the last thing you wanna to do to that brain is give it a bunch of sugar and artificial chemicals, which are gonna further disrupt um, all kinds of pathways. So there's been a lot of research on kids with autism or kids with seizure disorders that a ketogenic diet can help those kids. And really a ketogenic diet, when you're not looking at specific macros like fats, it's basically just eliminating everything artificial and everything with sugar and simple carbs. Um, and those, those diets work. I mean, before we started really using widespread um, anti-seizure drugs, we treated seizure disorders in kids primarily with a ketogenic diet, and it can be very, very effective. Janet, do you have any comments on that? I do. We have a very close um, friend, business partner in our community where, you know, they actually were able to stop using all the medications and control their daughter's seizure with food. And I am just impressed to hear um, that we are talking about the subject today with an addiction as well, that, you know, food plays such a big role. And would you say it's just all the fast food that we're using in our diets rather than healthy choices that we, you know, it, it, wh where do you see the food? Is it just because we can shop and it's so accessible to us or our choices are just not as good as they used to be? And do you have any thoughts on that? I think we really need to educate people on what healthy living is. And I think we have to understand the way the brain works too. So as we were saying before, we like that dopamine hit, right? right. We can easily get that in, in the food that's in, in our grocery stores. I mean, you, we know um, you have to go around the perimeter of the grocery store and really get the, the, mm -hmm. the proteins, the, the produce, the, the fruit. But if you are a kid, you know, who doesn't have good parenting, who's had some trauma, who feels lonely, um, and who is having cravings for some kind of connection or feeling good, they're going to reach for that candy. Um, and food is really one of the first addictions that we can do because it's right. so easy to get. So a, a child may not be able to get right away something like marijuana or alcohol, but he, he can get um, fast food. And I think even over the past 50 years, look at all the additives and the GMOs and the um, just the all of the substances that we're putting in our foods. We didn't do that 
50 years ago. And if you look at the, the obesity rates, how they've risen, um, part of that I think was just when we started telling people that we should eat more grains and more carbs instead of the fats. There was some research done, I think it was Ansel Keys who said, um, he believed, he was a nutritionist, that heart disease was directly correlated to the amount of saturated fat in your diet. Well, we've since discovered that's not true. So that research was flawed. But based upon that research, we came up with the, the FDA guidelines for what we should eat. So that's starting to change. Um, but I think if you're dealing with any kind of mental illness or physical illness for that matter, definitely lower your sugar, um, get more exercise, get blood going to the brain, um, get the right kind of light, lower your blue light, eat healthy fats, um, because that's going to help. That's going to help you stay healthy and have your hormones function the way they're designed to. Well, you were talking too about sugars being converted to alcohol in our in our pre-connection call. Um, can you expand on that a little bit? Well, it's just the way that that sugars are broken down in the brain. Um, so some of the way that that certain sugars are broken down are going to present themselves. You know, it, if you have to think of food like information. So food is protein, it's fats, it's carbohydrates, but it's also information to your brain. And food, information in the form of food is going to tell your genes how to, um, how to express themselves. So if you are giving your brain a bunch of sugars, sugars that are then converted into alcohols, your brain is going to ex literally express its DNA differently than it would if you were eating healthy vegetables and fruits. So you just have to you, you have to be aware of um, how things are broken down, how they're metabolized, and what that might feel like to somebody who has an addicted brain or a, a brain with ADHD or a brain with bipolar disorder. And genetically, I would say that some people are very predisposed to problems with that. If you look at different, like the Native American and certain other people might be very genetically predisposed to having issues if they're having too many carbs. Is that what? Yeah, um, we know, for example, that uh, there's a book written by a woman who works at Mass General Hospital. There's actually a, a unit there now um, on nutrition and psychiatry, and she runs that unit. Her name is Uma Naidu, and she wrote a book called This Is Your Brain on Food. Um, and she describes how when she's working with patients who have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, that when they alter their diets to include a lot of sugar and carbohydrates, they have more episodes. They have more manic episodes. They have more episodes of psychosis. And just by reducing the amount of, let's say, gluten or sugar in the diet, um, they can reduce the number of hospitalizations, reduce the number of, of episodes. Um, now, some of that may be due to people talk about leaky gut syndrome. I'm not an expert in that, but apparently if you challenge the lining of your gut enough with substances that it doesn't like, um, it's kind of like repeated insults to the endothelium of the intestinal lining. Um, then the gut can become kind of permeable when it's not supposed to be. And certain toxins or chemicals from your food can actually get into your bloodstream that aren't supposed to. And when they get into the bloodstream, they go straight to the brain. So in medical school, we're kind of trained that um, each, each doctor works with a different system. So you have a hematologist for the blood, you have a gastroenterologist for your GI system, you have a psychiatrist for the brain, but we forget that it's all connected. And particularly the, the gut and the brain, 
the, the gut now is being called the second brain because there's so much immunology in the gut and so many of our, for example, serotonin is made directly in the gut. Um, you know, all of our nutrients, all of our vitamins, all of our, um, you know, minerals are absorbed in the gut. Not all, but most are absorbed there. So if you don't have a healthy gut, you just can't have a healthy body period. And that includes the brain. Well, I think it's important, um, you know, to just look at the patient holistically, which is what I try to do. I, I don't see a, a broken person in front of me where there's something wrong and I need to fix it with a medication. I see a person who had trauma as a child, who had um, some kind of deficiency of connection maybe with their caregiver where they didn't learn how to self-soothe because we learn that in tandem with another human. You know, when a baby cries, the mom picks up the baby and that soothes the baby. And if she does that thousands and thousands of time, times, the baby then learns to regulate its own nervous system. But if something happens, let's say mom was depressed or addicted or in jail, the baby never learns that. The baby is going to look for something outside of itself. And that's what happens. Then, you know, baby grows up maybe in a bad neighborhood where they didn't have access to healthy food. Um, so you take an already kind of... Um, brain that's wired to feel a lot of fear, anxiety, and unable to calm down, you put a lot of sugar into the child. Then you put it in a school system that doesn't under, understand trauma. So instead, they're called lazy or stupid or um, given drugs for ADHD, which the child doesn't have. And it's just kind of this whole um, system of errors, which when you start unraveling it, there are many ways to help that person that really don't even have to include drugs at all, but just teaching the person this is how you soothe yourself. Um, and you have to do it carefully too, because the way that the person, so we usually look at obesity or addiction as problems. Really they're solutions. They're solutions that that child picked at age eight or nine because they felt better. Um, so when you, when you try to immediately yank away that coping mechanism, if you're not careful when you're doing it, that person's not going to make it through treatment because you're taking away the one thing they know how to do to calm down. You got to actually get to the underlying problem that started it in the first place. Yeah. We need, so, to do that too. we need to do that really on a national scale because the only real way to see an end or at least a reduction in these mental illnesses is treat the disconnection, you know, treat the, the parents, give the parents some skills. Um, well, I, I agree with that. I also think too, um, you know, there's such a difference even in our education with providers that have learned um, what development is proper and, and where that lies. Because sometimes I think if we have um, parents uneducated as well as our educators not understanding development of the human brain and the child's brain, um, then, you know, it just kind of manifests and keeps building on each other. And like you say, then we start labeling a situation in a person's life which really needs to be intervened with and actually be given some tools as to how to cope. And and that's okay because we all have places in our lives that we need to have some type of, you know, instruction on how to, you know, cope with something. I mean, we're not, we don't come with that instruction book already in place. I mean, we, we need others to help us. So um, how do we get to a place besides um, just coping with our pharmaceuticals to um, solve this because, uh, you know, 
I look on our streets and in Washington state, we have a huge problem of homelessness. And I feel like a lot of the times this is part of what we're seeing being reflected is that there's a person out there that probably hasn't found the tools yet to help with their, their trauma in their life. Yeah, and that's really a systems problem too. Um, there's a huge homelessness problem here. There's a huge homelessness problem in Florida. And we used to provide more um, community mental health services. And, um, you know, you really can't blame Republicans. You can't blame Democrats on this one because it doesn't really matter which administration was in. Mental health services are always the first to be cut. Um, and I think it's just a lack of understanding of what is going on with these people. I think it's too easy to look at a homeless person and think, well, just get a job or stop drinking. Um, but I think politicians and just people in general don't realize like they can't go back in time and see, okay, look, generation after generation of trauma, the person has no coping skills, for example, up here. So if that person was taken out of their tiny village where all they know how to do is fish and hunt, and then they're brought into Anchorage, which they've never seen a big city like this and told, okay, get to this clinic, this 90 day program. Um, it's just, it's overwhelming for them. They can't, it's easier for them to kind of just be homeless and, and end up on the street. And if it's not trauma informed care where the person understands they really can't regulate their nervous system, they need some additional um, assistance then it's just looked at, looked at as a failure of that person to complete a program um, school systems can be the same way if they're not trauma-informed. So I think it's a matter of educating all of these different systems. And we have to kind of be willing to put more money into it. I mean, even in Boston, where they had a really good um, public health system, there was a place called Massachusetts, Massachusetts Mental Health Center. And this was a, a free place where you would go get an injection if you needed it. If you were homeless, they gave you food. There was all-day programming. That... Um, it no longer exists. It was just defunded. Same thing up here. We only have three or four places where you can put somebody in an inpatient setting and teach them some of these skills. So we just need, we need more funding. We need more education and we need more services. Well, it sounds like, you know, individuals aren't failing in the system. The system is kind of failing them is kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I would completely agree with that statement. So explain, you had a great story about um, autism. Autism um, you know, seems to be more common, and it, it definitely could be because of diet for sure. Explain how you had a patient, or there's a story that uh, the GAPS diet, you can explain what that is, healed autism after one year. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So there's a woman, her name is Natasha Campbell McBride, and she wrote a book called The GAPS Diet. And GAPS just stands for Gut and Psychology Syndrome. Um, and she has or had a child with autism who basically she was told by medical providers, like, there's nothing you can do. Your, your, your daughter is profoundly mentally ill. Um, we can try these medications. Nothing was working. So she devised a diet, which is just basically highly anti-inflammatory, no chemical additives, no sugar, no carbohydrates, very similar to a ketogenic diet. Um, and she, her daughter was completely healed. I think she spent a year, maybe a year and a half on this diet, just complete, all the symptoms of autism disappeared. So um, it's a really interesting book. I ordered it, I think on eBay. I don't even know if it's still in print, but um, she believes that a lot of this was, a lot of her daughter's 
symptoms were due to leaky gut syndrome that in some people, maybe you or I could eat a lot of chemical additives in our food and not have anything more than maybe mild irritability, but some children, whatever, for whatever reason, just like some people are more uh, susceptible to alcoholism, some human beings are more susceptible to uh, mental health issues when they eat a lot of processed food. It makes logical sense. And definitely there have been lots of parents who have used the GAPS diet with success. Well, so why, why don't we, why don't more doctors prescribe the GAPS diet or the ketogenic diet? Um, you know, why, why do you feel that is in, in mainstream medicine? Well, I could say for myself, when I trained in the 90s, we didn't have, so I finished residency in 1998. And I think the, the ACEs study was just starting in 1995. So we didn't really have that information. I remember when I trained, everything was very biologically based in the 90s. We learned what was we thought was wrong with your brain, which we thought was some kind of a defect. Um, we didn't learn that it was an adaptation to trauma. At least that's not what I was taught. And I went to a pretty good program, I would say. Um, but we were we had a lot of new medications at the time, and there was kind of a um, just there was a belief at the time. I think that these medications were going to fix everything. Um, but after being in the field now for almost 25 years, I can say, are they helpful? Yes, they can be very helpful for some people. Are they the answer or the solution? I don't believe so. I think part of it also is that um, we didn't learn a lot about nutrition. So I don't know how comfortable a lot of doctors are with prescribing something like a diet. Um, I think that I went and looked for my own kind of answers outside of what I was taught in medical school. Um, and when I started reading a lot of these books on nutrition, it just made sense to me. You know, if, if our genes are looking at food as information, um, the same way they look at medications, then why aren't we using food as a solution? And I think it, it has to do with ease too. I mean, it's much easier in a 10 or 15 minute visit to just say, here's a pill, this will help you goodbye. Um, rather than digging into the whole trauma history, family history, um, and patients don't always know. So if you'd asked me at age 21 or 22, are you having depression and anxiety right now because of your upbringing? I would have said, no, there was nothing wrong with my upbringing. I mean, right. My parents loved me. I think it took me a lot of reading, a lot of my own therapy, a lot of my own healing to kind of draw the connection. Because um, I did have anxiety in my 20s and 30s. Now I look back and say that was PTSD, but I didn't know that then. And neither did any doctor I went to. They didn't ask those kind of questions. They asked about family history in terms of a genetic link. They didn't ask any questions about trauma. Um, so I think it's just really important that we know what questions to ask. So what about, you know, the, the, the patient we had on that her seizures were cured from keto diet. Um, she was on five or six different medications and she went off all of them after and was seizure free after being um, on the keto diet. Now I got to think that, you know, that, that, you know, big pharma lost, you know, lost out big time on this gal, thousands of dollars a month. So is there any economic incentive that, um, in our healthcare system about, you know, big pharma pushing these things and, and, and why we don't push diet? Well, I would have to think so. You know, I think big pharma has more of an influence than we like to think, even on medical school curricula, um, big pharma puts a lot of the money into studies. So, um, like I'm interested in trauma and addiction, but I may not have a million dollars to go design a study. So if I want to um, 
if I want to do a study, a lot of the times it's going to have to be, someone's going to have to fund that study for me. Um, and the studies can kind of be designed to show what you want them to show. I, I did some research when I was, um, when I first got out of residency, I wanted to do, or I thought I wanted to do academic medicine. So I did that for about a year before I realized this isn't really my interest. But I did a lot of um, studies on antidepressants and things like that. Um, and it was just interesting to me that the way the study was designed was basically, you knew what you were going to get. Um, but I'm not saying that every study is wrong or, you know, everything is flawed, but definitely there is, um, big pharma needs to make money. They have these products, they want to sell them. And it, it's, it's not just big pharma though. It's also just us as individuals. It's, it's trickier to adhere to a ketogenic diet. You know, we all love carbs. They're, um, rewarding. They taste good. They're yummy. So I'm, I'm sure as a parent, it can be difficult to get the child to, to adhere to a diet like this. So there's a lot of different factors that go into it. And what we were talking about too, that, you know, sometimes with the ketogenic diet, it's basically low carb, high fat. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about that. We really shouldn't be surprised about that, that it works for many mental illnesses and, and seizures. Since there's kind of some commonality there. They all, you know, they all originate in the CNS, um, mm -hmm. but the brain is mostly lipids and, and cholesterol. Um, can you speak to that at all? Well, since I've learned a lot about diet and nutrition and its impact on mental health, it makes me think that maybe the rise in the ADHD and autism and some of these other illnesses have are directly related to diet. I mean, when we told everyone, okay, don't eat fat because that's going to give you a heart attack. Let's eat a bunch of grains, you know, seven to 10 servings of grains a day. Um, I know, for example, when I removed grains from my diet, I felt so much better. Um, so I definitely feel like I just, my body and brain function better. I have more energy on a higher fat diet. Um, and so there's other things that we do too, though. You know, we put younger and younger women on birth control pills. How is that impacting their brain function? Um, so we, we are a society that eats a lot of processed foods and takes a lot of medications. I think the only, the, there's, France is second to us, but we are the number one in the entire world of how many prescription medications we take. Wow, that's an alarming statistic. Can you talk at all about um, the statin medications for, for cholesterol, for lowering cholesterol and brain function? Have you seen any correlation, any mental illness or any kind of um, CNS diseases related in your practice due to that? So I tend to see, I don't see a lot of, of elderly just because people that are in addiction treatment, typically um, it'll be like age 18 to 65. Although there are certainly people who come in after the age of 65, but from what I've read, they're wondering now if maybe the statins have something to do with dementia. And I, I don't know, I haven't read all the studies recently, um, but anything we put in our body is going to have an effect. And we know that every drug that we take has side effects. So I think do, you know, obviously follow your doctor's recommendations, but whatever you can do with a healthy lifestyle, diet, exercise, the right kind of light, um, reducing your exposure to trauma. And if you have trauma, get it treated. I would say do all of those things before, you know, thinking, okay, well, I can just take another medication because you may not need it. So let's speak of lights. You were talking about sad lights. And you can explain what those are, especially way up in Alaska when we don't have a lot of sunshine during the year and how it affects our vitamin D function. Can you talk about lights and vitamin D? 
Well, I think we know that um, light exposure, we are, we are beings that depend on a circadian rhythm. So typically when it starts to get dark out, we're gonna start producing more melatonin. The melatonin tells our brain when it's time to go to sleep. But melatonin also affects other chemicals as well. So it can affect our sex hormones, our testosterone, our estrogen. Um, it has impact on mood, um, which is why people can sometimes report seasonal affective disorder symptoms as it starts to get dark this time of the year. And it's particularly prevalent up here in Alaska because we have six months of low light and then we have six months of a lot of sunshine. Um, but yeah, the satellite is something that I started using when I was up in Boston doing my residency. And basically it's, um, it looks like a little kind of a table lamp and it has units of light, which are called lux. It has 10,000 lux or 10,000 units of light. And it's supposed to mimic just the natural sunshine that you would get for 30 or 40 minutes per day. Um, and if you study near it or read near it, there's definitely, I can tell a difference in my mood when I use it. I feel like I have more energy. I'm a little bit more optimistic. I'm less grouchy. Um, so it's basically, it's just working by signaling our melatonin. We also know too that it's important to reduce exposure to certain kinds of light, like blue light. So when we're sitting in front of computers all day, like we're doing now, I have, these are blue light blocking glasses that I have on right now. Oh, cool. We know, we know that if we are exposed to too much blue light, um, that that is particularly, it, it suppresses melatonin more than any other wavelength of light. Um, there's also some research that if you expose yourself more to red light, that that can heal inflammation and possibly even, um, I don't like to use the word cure, but can definitely reduce some of your um, inflammatory type diseases. So people will sometimes purchase red light devices um, to help with that. And vitamin D, what's the importance of vitamin D, especially during the winter? So vitamin D, you definitely need, um, it helps with all kinds of bio biochemical processes in the body. Um, it's important for mood. It's important to reduce inflammation as well. Um, and when you're not getting exposed to enough, enough light, you're not going to have enough vitamin D. So up here, we supplement it. Um, and you could probably talk more as to what's a good source of vitamin D to take, because I know there's also... Um, if you're not absorbing it correctly, then it's not going to help you to take a supplement. But I would say, you know, get a good quality supplement. Janet, can you um, comment on vitamin D a little bit? I, I, I totally agree with what um, Dr. Duran is saying. Good quality um, supplements important because we know that um, supplement companies are not regulated as well as, as pharmaceuticals, which is good and bad in many ways. But um, you really get what you pay for. So if, if, if it's really inexpensive, you're probably not getting uh, a quality product. Um, over the years, we've used a company um, that stands behind their product. Orthomolecular is, is one. Um, but there are other companies out there that give uh, good products. But I think one of the first things that a person should decide is where are you purchasing it? Um, if you are in question of, of what the supplement can do for you, I think having a good place to purchase it at for you know, the person to be able to explain to you what it is and, and the quality of it is important. Um, and I agree 5,000 units is uh, a good place to start on a daily um, 
There's also products that you can take once a week, 50,000 units. And there are tests out there to see that aren't really expensive to make sure that you are at a good level. I mean, we've had some clients that even where we live that are snowbirds that have found that um, they really need to supplement a lot more throughout the winter months versus the summer months, partly because they just aren't absorbing it. And that could be partly genetics. Some people seem to have um, better genetics for maintaining or retaining vitamin D production in their skin. Um, anything else you'd like to add to that? Well, I, I think uh, one thing too is it's not just, um, you know, in northern latitudes necessarily or even in the winter which you know vitamin d is produced in our skin in response to sunlight um for sure um and it you know the sunlight especially in northern latitudes doesn't hit us as direct as it does at the equator so even if we are out in the sun enough which most of us are not because we're work inside and if we don't work inside anymore what do we do we cover up and with sleeves or we use sunscreen, which negates the production of vitamin D. So I will say that almost everybody, that's a strong statement, almost everybody probably needs to supplement vitamin D. I think it's important too that you know what your level is. And normal is not, you know, the normal level is like 30 to 100, but normal is not 30. We want optimal. So you really want a level of, of a little bit above 60, 60 to 100. And I will tell you, we had a patient in Alaska this is no no lie. She was having to take 50,000 units every day to actually get adequate levels. Now, obviously, she probably had some malabsorption issues, um, but obviously, she was in Alaska in the winter, too, and she was way up north, so she was having almost no sunshine. So maybe not much of a surprise, but I think if there's one supplement you can take, it's probably vitamin D3. It's important to get vitamin D3 too, not vitamin D2 because vitamin D3 is the active form of the vitamin D. Vitamin D is fat soluble. So it is absorbed better if you take it with food or some kind of, you know, some kind of fat even possibly, but at least some kind of food to stimulate that acid production in your stomach. So it gets absorbed better. But um, also because it is fat soluble, it stays in your body up to 19 days because it's got a long half-life. So you don't have to take it every day, like Janet said. You can actually take it once a week. Um, 5,000 units a day is a pretty good baseline. If you take 50,000 units once a week, it actually ends up being like 7,200 units a day. So um, I'm a big believer in vitamin D because it does so much for mental health and your bones and your immune system. Uh, and it's very inexpensive and most people are low in it. So... So, um, yeah, but that's vitamin D. So what about, you were talking earlier, I know tanning gets a bad rap, but um, you say in Alaska, there's people that tan in the winter and you're okay with that, correct? I think if it's, you know, if you limit the exposure, I mean, I have friends who are dermatologists that would be horrified <laughs> right. at hearing me say this. <laughs> Especially for mood. I mean, you definitely feel better. We know that, that, like you were saying, vitamin D can affect mood. And up here, when we just have so little light exposure, you know, if you do five or 10 minutes in a tanning bed, um, some of the people up here swear by it. They say they feel so much better and they just feel more optimistic and their mood stays more stable. So, um, Jen, do you have any more questions for Dr. Duran? So, I, um, I'm always curious um, how you feel that our medical system can kind of turn to a different model because I feel like I have conversations daily with clients that um, they are being treated, like you said, for just the one thing, like maybe their knee hurts, but um, they really have some 
something else that is happening at the same time? And how do we get back to a holistic approach for our patients? Because I, I heard throughout our conversation today that, you know, really that's kind of how you're approaching your client, that you're looking at the whole human body, their brain, what else is going on, their nutrition, their sleep. So what what is your gut feeling as to how we can pivot this back into more of a patient whole holistic uh, approach? Well, I definitely think um, there are a lot of doctors now that are doing kind of a direct primary care. And that's pretty close to what I did when I was in um, private practice. So I tried to offer the most comprehensive services and just, you know, kind of like a one-stop shop. Um, but it, it just depends. I mean, there, it, it depends the, the availability of the doctors in your area. So if there is a direct primary care, I think that's always a good thing to get involved in. Um, and even then uh, the doctors, we as the physicians have to be careful where, where we accept employment too, because my current system right now, I'm working for IHS and they give us plenty of time. So I have 90 minutes to do an initial evaluation um, and I think that's very fair. So in an hour and a half, I can I can spend a lot of time getting to know that individual. And they really, um, I would say this healthcare system is one of the reasons why I took this this position. I, you know, they they really care about um, giving enough time to really get to know that person. But then it becomes a systems um, issue, as we were saying before. So I may have a lot of time to spend with that person, but let's say I determine that they need inpatient treatment. If we don't have that in Alaska, right. then, and I run into that all the time, just where we just don't have. So I don't know if it's just that we need to attract the right kind of investors. Um, I don't know, you know, in Florida, one of the reasons I wanted to leave Florida actually was just that there were too many private investors with the wrong kind of motives where they would come into the healthcare system and say, Oh, look, we can make, X amount of dollars and we can do it in a year and a half and then we'll fold. And I don't know what's going to happen to the patients, but we made our million or whatever that they determine. And you just can't have that kind of mindset in medicine. I mean, it is a business and you do need to make a profit, but it can't be at the expense of what the patients truly need. So I have answers for you, but. Yeah. Well, I think you answered it a little bit earlier on in your, in, you know, your first statement a couple paragraphs back is that, you know, Doctors need to really be in charge of the healthcare system. Again, um, I'm going to guess the investors you're talking about were not doctors. Um, no. You know, they were people with deep pocketbooks wanting to make some money. And mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm with you. I, we got to make money. I'm a capitalist. I mean, we have to make money, but um, you know, we also have to make. You know, we also have to realize that people are involved too, and um, you know what our ultimate goal is. So um, I appreciate you stating that because I. You know, one of the jobs, one of the missions of our podcast is to just educate, educate and empower consumers that they need to take care of their, take care of their health. And one of those is, is to, you know, find a doctor that they can work with and, and get a personal relationship with. And a lot of people don't realize that because they have been so indoctrinated that they have to go to a doctor that their insurance company tells them they have to go to because it's in their network and all that. And that is just absolutely not true because that's, that might not be the best doctor. So patients need to take charge and doctors need to take charge of the healthcare system again, for sure. So Dr. Duran, we, in, in our final uh, minutes here, how would you like to sum up our conversation today? And if people have any questions, how can they get a hold of you? 
So I would say just to sum up, I think it's really important that we start educating um, all the systems in America, you know, the schools, um, mental health care, traditional health care, what trauma is, what it looks like, um, what does a person act like who has trauma and how can I help them? How can I prevent trauma in my children? If they did suffer some kind of trauma, what can I do? Um, just so that we understand, you know, addiction doesn't just occur, occur in a vacuum and neither do any other illness. Um, so they largely occur in response to trauma. Um, we like to think of addiction as something that's the fault of drug dealers in the schoolyard, but really it's what happened to that person? Why are they suffering? And this was the adaptation or the solution that they found. It is treatable though. All of these things are treatable and there are people, including myself, who can help. Um, so right now I'm just working. The best way to reach me would be to just call the Fireweed Clinic, which is in Anchorage, Alaska. It's through South Central Foundation. Um, so I'm not taking private clients right now because I'm specifically doing this kind of work. Um, so... Yeah. I love it. I love it. So you've been a great wealth of information today, Dr. Duran. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be with us today. There's a lot of stuff that, that came out of this conversation today, um, and I, I so appreciate it. So um, thank you so much for being on, and we will definitely be in touch. Thank so, you for having You're welcome. So Thursday, tune in for our midweek podcast. Um, actually, sorry, it will be Wednesday this week because I am leaving Thursday. So tune in Wednesday. We will have actually another psychiatrist on. So this psychiatrist is um, Dr. Z. Um, she is out of Missouri and she has some um, alternative treatments. Uh, one of them is, is ketamine. She has some ketamine infusions and she'll be talking about why she got out of mainstream psychiatry to do some traditional stuff uh, or do just do some non-traditional treatments. So tune in then eight to eight to nine a.m. Wednesday um, on my personal Facebook page and the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacies YouTube. Dr. Duran, thank you so much for being on today. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you so much.